In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Today on Money Tales, we talk to Tanya Vasayo. Growing up thinking men are in charge of money and everything else, this dynamic woman flipped those rules on their head. Tanya grew up in Spain, and it wasn't until she spent a year abroad studying in the United States at age 15, where she had her first taste of true freedom. For Tanya, this was the freedom to take ownership of herself and her decisions, which is one of her core values. This craving for freedom has driven Tanya to be in charge of her own destiny ever since. Hi, this is Sandy. Tanya started her career on the creative side of business as an art director in the advertising industry. Feeling stifled and disconnected to the work, Tanya pivoted and founded The Courage to Be Happy. This is a community that empowers ambitious women entrepreneurs about how to own their value and charge what they are worth so that they can make more money and make a bigger difference in the world. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, onto our conversation with Tanya Vasayo. Tanya Vasayo, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and talk money with you ladies. To get us started, will you orient us to your life by telling us a little bit about your journey, focusing on two to three pivotal moments who really make you the person that you are today? I was born and raised in Spain, right at the end of Franco's dictatorship. But even though he died 75, it carried through, you know, there's this, the leftovers, like I like to call them, that were still left in society and culture. And my dad's Spanish, my mom's American. So I grew up in Spain. And my first experience of coming to live in the American culture, not just coming in a summer here or summer there to visit my grandparents, was when I was 15. I got to come here and study in Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio, and stay with my uncle and aunt, my mom's brother, and experience the American culture and realized that I didn't know as much English as I thought I did, or at least I didn't know a lot of slang. That was an important moment in my journey just because it was an experience of freedom. And I'll explain a little bit about that. Growing up in Spain, there's always like this unspoken, invisible language of Men are in charge of money. Men are the the leaders of the pack, per se, the leaders of the family, and we follow what men do. And on top of that, you know, so growing up in a patriarchal country, culture, and the dictatorship, to add to all of this, my dad comes from a family of seven brothers and one sister, and the sister's the youngest. So there was even more emphasis on how important men are in your life, and they are the guiding post. And so I had a, a wonderful childhood. You know, it does not about a bad childhood or anything. But when I got to the States for the first time, I just realized how many rules there were in Spain and everything. At school, like you had to study everyone had to be Catholic. Everyone had to study catechism. You had to go to religious studies and you couldn't choose ethics class or religious class. There's just all these rules that because you grew up with it, you really don't know what you don't know until you experience it somewhere else. And that's where I say that coming to the U.S. at 15 
first, I didn't have to wear a uniform <laughs> to school. I got to choose my own classes in high school. I got to meet people from other countries, other cultures, growing up in a Catholic country, even though my family is very mixed. My dad's seven brothers, one sister. My mom's American and three of the other brothers married foreign women. So I have a Swedish aunt, British aunt, Colombian aunt. And then on my mom's side, I have a Japanese aunt. So I was exposed to variety and ethnicity and cultures but we all lived and reside in Spain going to, according to the rules of Spain. So when I came to the States and I met the first Jewish person, African-American, you know, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. You know, like this is just expanding what I'm used to, you know, in my family, speaking different languages and stuff. And so that was a big, important moment coming to the States and experiencing that freedom. It just put me in touch to freedom being one of my main values. It's just at, at my core, I need to have freedom in my life. The second moment was when I graduated college, I graduated in fine arts and communication and a minor in fine arts. I interned in New York City at an ad agency, Mad Men style, <laughs> and realized that I wanted to be a creative and I needed a portfolio. And I just had to go to school for that. And I studied at School for the Visual Arts in New York while I was there, while I was interning. But I didn't like the structure of the school. It was too many people. I didn't think it was the right fit for me. So I went back to Spain right after college, and I started interning at an agency there. And not getting paid, because you work, but you don't get paid as an intern in Spain. And four months into it, I realized, I'm like, this is not what I want to do even though my dad, father figure, you know, and we follow the rules of what the men say, I don't think you should be going to study abroad again. I think you're just wanting to party and you just want to continue with your partying. And, and the reason why he was saying that is because I had found a school in the States. There weren't many schools that specialized in art direction and advertising and the creative aspect of it. And there was Pasadena School of Design, but they were requiring a whole other undergraduate. There was School of Visual Arts, which I had experience and I wasn't excited about it. And then there was Portfolio Center in Atlanta. And this new school that was kind of like a branch of Portfolio Center, because the founders of Portfolio Center in Atlanta started it in Miami. And there was only one graduating class, seven students. And, but that's where my heart was. It was just calling me. I had to go to Miami. And so when I exposed this idea back in Madrid and turning at this agency, feeling totally constrained and oppressed in this agency, you know, not getting paid for what I'm doing. And I'm like, I want to go to the States. I'm going to Miami. But there wasn't a parental male approval of this. So I had to figure out how am I going to do this? Because when I set my eye on something, I want it and I'm going to figure out a way to get it. So I applied for student loans because I'm like, I have American citizenship. I can do loans like the rest of American people do. So I applied for student loans and they granted it. I also interviewed with four different creative directors in Spain of well-known agencies. No one encouraged them. All were male too. There was only one man at my last interview just to, just to see because I was second guessing. I'm like, well, maybe my dad's right. He has experience and it's not about me butting heads with him. And they all agreed with him. Like, no, you should get your portfolio done, be working at an agency. You don't need to go study more. And so I but the last man I interviewed, I'll never forget, I'm so grateful for him, and Bates, and I can't remember his name. He just said to me, he's like, well, Miami is not really like the main place where you would want to study advertising. I'd say if, if the school was in New York or in LA, maybe that would be the place to go study advertising, you know, the creative aspect of advertising. But hey, if your heart is feeling it and you're feeling a pull towards it, then do it. You have to follow your heart. And so that's what I needed to hear. And that gave me the green light. So I got the student loans. It was my grandparents' 50th anniversary in Florida, up in Orlando. And so we're in the same state. 
and I exposed it to my parents since my parents were already buying us plane tickets to go to the anniversary that I just needed a one-way ticket. I didn't need a round trip. And that gave us two weeks of not speaking to each other, my dad and I. Like, he just didn't agree with it. He didn't think it was the right thing. And almost like, how could I disagree? Like, he knows better. He's got the experience. And if my dad listens to that, yeah, I love my dad. I have a great relationship with him. But this is part of my experience and my story. So anyway, I embarked on the journey. We celebrated my grandparents' 50th anniversary and my grandparents had saved up. They didn't have a lot of money, but they had saved up since I was born. They had put money into a CD and I think it was about $3,000. They gave it to me after the anniversary. They said, good luck. Use this money on your journey, on this new endeavor. And I used it to rent a car, to get myself down to Miami. I stayed for a week at a friend of a friend's house. I didn't even know the woman and started looking for work. That's what I had to do. You have to understand too, in Spain, kids don't start looking for jobs. It's not like here in the States where you'll get a job during college and high school or the summers. That's not a thing in Spain, or at least it wasn't when I was growing up. So I knew I had to get some work just to kind of save up a little bit before I started school. And that's what I did. I, I used that money. I used part of it for a rental car. And then the other part was to put the deposit for an apartment. And I was so excited. I'm like, I am on my journey. I'm doing what I wanted to do. I'm going to go to Miami at school. This school is amazing. And it was hard. And I didn't own a car until like the second year there. And I rode my bike everywhere. I worked full time. I went to school, but it was amazing. And that was an important moment for me and my journey. Again, chasing freedom, following my goals, following my vision, following my dreams, listening to my heart, even though everyone else might not agree with it. And listening to my, my intuition. So I graduated Miami Ad School, did amazing. My parents came as a surprise to the graduation. My dad was super encouraging. And then he wanted to support. Like, I don't think he believed, he always believed that the best route in advertising was to learn about sales and marketing versus being an art director. He had been in that world and he thought I'd burn out fast and that I should have something else that would hold me in place education wise. I graduated there. I moved to New York City and I worked in big agencies in New York City, multi-million dollar accounts like Samsung, AT&T Wireless, Nabisco, Starbucks, problem solving for these million dollar corporations doing their ads for them until it just didn't align with my values anymore. It was when I had a work on a campaign for 100 calorie packs. I don't know if you guys know them, Oreos, Chips Ahoy, all those horrible snacks that we all love, but only 100 calories. And they wanted to sell this as a health and wellness campaign for moms. And even though I wasn't a mom, I knew that it was, I was just like, how, how am I going to do this? I don't believe in that. So what ended up happening, even though it looked really glamorous from the outside in, got to travel first class all around the world, you're making good money as an art director in New York City. You know, like it sounds wonderful and fabulous. But my soul just inside, I again, I started feeling oppressed, compressed, repressed, every press. I'm like, I have to get out of here. I don't want to do corporate life anymore. And I quit my corporate job. So did my husband, who was an art director at the time. We went into photo school to polish up on our photography skills and then after we did our course in Maine, this was a summer thing. We're like, where do we want to live now? And we ended up moving back to Spain. He was open to the idea of moving to Spain. You have to understand, he's from Philadelphia, did not speak a word of Spanish. And he was brave enough to say, I'll go to Spain. Let's give it a try. And we moved from New York City to the small town in the northern part of Spain, Galicia, in Coruña. The region is Galicia, right above Portugal. That's where we had gotten married. That's where my family's from, even though I was born and raised in, in Madrid. And we opened up a studio. We had no idea what we were doing, but we just knew we wanted the freedom. Everyone thought we were crazy. 
my dad had a plan for us. He's like, you live with us for six months while Ben's learning the language and while you're working at an ad agency. So you have income coming in. We looked at our direction. We opened up a studio up north, not in a big city and everything on faith, always on faith. I move on faith and just knowing that things will work out. And we did that for four years. We worked in the film industry. We offered all kinds of creative services and advertising, photography, marketing, branding. And then after four years, we realized that our relationship would be better back in the States. So it was time to come back. I'm glad that I experienced living in Spain as an adult, not as a kid, you know, like the trials and tribulations as an adult and working. And now the question was, where are we going to live? Do we go back to New York City? Do we, do we, where do we go? Philadelphia? I did not want the suburbs in the States. And the negotiating started and seeing again, aligning with our values. We wanted art and culture and we wanted nature. So we narrowed it down to Asheville, North Carolina and Santa Fe, New Mexico. We'd been here on a vacation. I've never been to Asheville, but heard great things. Never made it to Asheville to visit. We tried out Santa Fe, and I loved that it had the Hispanic background, but we're still in the States. So we moved here, moved the studio here, ran it for a couple years until Ben, my husband's like, I don't feel like doing this anymore. I don't want, you know, I just, I think I just want to focus on my art. And I said, that's wonderful. And I'm all in for that. But where does that leave me now? So a lot of soul searching started because I also had a degree and a certification in life coaching. And I'm like, do I go back to my life coaching? Do I want to stick with the art direction? Who do I want to work for? Who do I want to serve? What's my purpose in life? Like I just, there was just too many questions. So I started digging in a little bit and I got exposed to the entrepreneurial world and signed up to a mastermind and started implementing everything that I was learning. Again, I realized that the pivotal moments in my life, it's always about learning, learning new skills, learning new things, learning things that you don't know. And then that's when you can make change. And at this point, I started my own business, The Courage to Be Happy. I launched it, I believe it's 2015. And I just knew there was something bigger for me. And even though I started working with women, because I was like, well, what's my purpose? Why was I born and raised in Spain? Why did I have an American mother and a Spanish father? Like, what's my purpose in life? What am I supposed to be doing? Why did I study art direction? Why do I do life coaching? Why, you know, like, how do I bring all of this together? And I launched the business. I doubled the business every year. And so by the third year, and this all with an 18 month old in hand. So I didn't have a lot of time to work. I could only spend about 20 to 25 hours a week on my business. Go figure, you know, when you're in corporate, you're spending like 80 hours a week working for them and giving everything you have. And when I want to work for myself and give those 80 hours, I didn't have them. Other women started asking me, what was I doing? How was I doing it? I broke the six figures, which to me was a huge goal, especially working basically part-time, 20 hours a week. And so I ended up starting to get more and more into the entrepreneurial world. I always saw myself as a freelancer, not as an entrepreneur. That sounded way too out there, whole other level. And as I was learning all of that, I started learning a lot about my relationship with money. And I started having a lot of mentors. Ever since I launched my business on my own, I started having a lot more mentors, teachers, coaches, paying people high dollars to learn. When my husband and I were running it, it was kind of feast and famine. You have two creative directors, two creative people running a business that have never studied business, never studied sales, never studied any of that stuff. So then I understood, I'm like, what was missing is that we never had anyone teaching us this stuff. And that's when I started teaching other women. I'm like, you can have a craft and things that you love doing, but you have to learn about business and you have to learn about sales and you have to learn everything behind it. And another big component is your relationship with money. And that's when I decided I was still under this premise that the men in my life were going to be there to save me. 
you know, even though I was very independent and I could achieve my own goals, there was always like the safety net and the security of it's going to be my dad. It's going to be my husband. I don't have brothers, but there's always going to be a male figure there saving me. And it wasn't until I decided maybe like three or four years, four years ago, and that journey of starting my own business, I need to learn this. I need to heal my relationship with money so that I can succeed. And that's where everything turns. So if you would have told me five years ago that I'd be teaching women about business and money, I would have laughed at you because I was a creative. And creatives don't do money, don't do sales, and don't do business. That's for the boring people. But now I love it. I'm fascinated with money. I am fascinated with women and their relationship with money. I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission of teaching women to embrace this, to have that relationship with money. That's why when I'm invited to podcasts like yours and more women were talking about, I'm like, oh my God, I get goosebumps. I'm so excited to be here (laughs) and talk about these things. Let's start back in Spain the first time in your early years. You gave us a setup about how life was like in Spain when you were young and how it was so male dominated and the men were sort of responsible for everything, including the money. And you had an American mother. So what was money like in your home? And how are you thinking about money as a young person? Growing up, we weren't poor, but we weren't abundant in money. It wasn't there. My mom had to work. My dad had to work. When I was born, I think I picked up that there was a stress that now there's a child. Now I can understand that now more as an adult and being a mom myself. And I think kids are very perceptive. And I believe that I perceived that there was stress because I showed up in this world. Yeah, I'm the firstborn. And there was also stress. It's interesting that this story is coming to mind. I was the firstborn and then my sister came two and a half years later and they thought she was going to be a boy. And they even had a name for her already, Sergio. And then surprise, it was a girl. And I think there was a sense of disappointment with that. And as a little girl, again, perceiving, I do pride myself on my perception and on my intuitiveness. And I see it in my own daughter now. And I'm pretty sure that I picked up on this. And this is what shaped me in a certain way. I decided from that moment on that I didn't want to be a girl. And I think in part to please my dad, because there was that disappointment that there was no boy. Suddenly there's two girls. In part two, because I was perceiving around me that boys had it better. It it was better to be a boy. You were going to be loved. You were going to be given more opportunities. And my little three-year-old mind, but I was understanding that. So we didn't have a lot. I, my interpretation about money as a young girl was that you had to work for it. And the money was associated with acknowledgement, affection, love. So if you be a certain way, you can get love and you can get money. There's this intertwining of all of it together. And that shaped me. And I think that's part of why I wanted to be a boy until I was 13. And I peace standing up, copying my, my older cousins because I don't have brothers or whatever. And I'd cry if I had to wear a dress to a birthday party until I was allowed to wear pants. And, and I think these were all subconscious things of just what I'd picked up that if you were a boy, you'd be better off in regards to growing up there. Again, I had a wonderful childhood, but these are the nuances that working on it and understanding and speaking it out loud, even like in in moments like these with you, you're like, wow, breakthrough right there. I started acting in that way. So then with time, money, my dad worked hard and that's the belief that was passed down and became successful. Several of his brothers, many of his brothers became very successful in their jobs. They all worked for corporate except for one of them and they all did well. 
And so the message that was passed down with that was you want to make money, you have to work hard. You want to be successful, you have to work hard. So the biggest belief that I am still peeling away is that you have to work hard for money or you have to work hard to be successful. So that's what's been passed down from young age up to adulthood now. You mentioned that freedom is one of your main values. And then you talked about at 15, studying in Cleveland. Tell us more about that. Did you have to pay your way? Did you have to make money to buy anything along your journey? No, that's a great question. I didn't. Here's the thing, though. In Spain, when kids would go abroad, like in their sophomore, junior, or senior year, because it's a typical thing, but it's more of a upper middle class scenario, if you have that opportunity to go study in England or go study in the States. It's usually through a program, an exchange program of some sort that costs money. So we were always very frugal with things and we'd find the savings on how to do things. I do pride myself on that now. I learned that from my mom, you know, like how to actually from both of them, my mom and my dad. But so it was like, oh, she's going to private school. We, and I don't know, I'd have to have this conversation with my parents. And actually, I believe that the year that I was abroad, yes, my dad had lost his job and he was in the middle of a lawsuit. He was the president of that company, a general manager. They were suing them. I don't really know the exact story about it. So he was unemployed for a whole year, but they were still trying to give me the same lifestyle that we had had up to then. And so they're like, well, we could still send her to the States, but we don't have to pay all that money for the programs or whatever. I'd I'd have to talk with my parents about this scenario because it's a great question. And you can go study with Uncle John. Just go live with Uncle John. And I lived, I, my room was in the basement and a fold up couch. So we don't have to pay money, but I can still have the experience. I did not work on the side. I was 15, turned 16 there. And like I said, that wasn't a thing in Spain. So I was like, my mom, several years, you know, at that age and the teenage years, like, well, you need to find yourself a job. I'm like, where? No one works at 15 and 16 in Spain. As much as I'd like to, you know, the most I'd done was babysit the neighbors. So yeah, that was funded, but it was funded in a way by my parents in a thrifty way and them kind of sheltering me through the stress that they must have been going through. Cause I know my dad borrowed money at that time from friends and siblings to get us through that year. So Tanya, when you were in Cleveland, you said that's when you became aware that there were all these rules back home in Spain, because while you were living in Spain, it's just how the things were. When you came to the United States, that must've been such a cultural difference thinking back through the chronology how did that impact your orientation around money i'm not sure if i was aware at that age so much maybe the money thing there was a more pivotal moment switching schools in eighth grade so it was the year before i went to the states that had a bigger impact from the money perspective which was I'm going from the school that that did have a uniform. I was the only one in my community. We lived in a community of 23 homes and the other kids in that community, I'd want to say there were like 10 of them that went to a particular private school that I wanted to go to also, because I'm like, well, they're all there. They all wait for the bus on that side of the street. I have to wait on the other side. I'm the weird kid, you know, that can't go to the same school they can but my parents first, I mean, I fought for two years to convince my parents to sign me up to that school. Finally, I convinced them. And the summer before going to that school, one of the neighbors of the 10 that went to that school said to me, if you want to have friends at this school, again, it's an upper class. I know it was an effort for my parents to be able to pay for this private school. This girl, this neighbor said to me, I was going into the same grade as she was. If you want to have friends at the school, you better be wearing Levi's pants, camper shoes, Lacoste t-shirts, and I don't know what else, but those were like the main brands that I remember. I was like, oh, we can't afford that. How am I going to get a pair of Levi's 
pants that are $100 plus in Spain at that time. In the States, there were only 25. How am I going to get a pair of camper shoes that are also $100 plus that my parents will not pay for? And how am I going to get a Lacoste shirt that's $50 plus? And we're talking over 20 years ago. So again, creativity, resourcefulness. I'm begging my mom. I'm like, how do we do this? I'm not going to have friends in this new school. And we happened to be going to Tampa to visit my grandparents that summer. So we went to the outlet malls and we went to the secondhand stores and we got Levi's for 25 bucks or 20 bucks. We got Lacoste for whatever, 10 or $15. But the camper shoes, how the heck am I going to get a pair of camper shoes? Because they didn't sell those here in the States. So the deal was, I'd pay for half of them and my mom would pay for the other half. So with my money that I had saved and my allowance, I would be now ready and set to be accepted, to be loved, to be acknowledged and to be cared for and have affection for the kids from the new school. It is horrible. You know, we are horrible at schools. So I feel like that was a bigger moment regarding money than so much in the States. It didn't make me realize though, once I came to the States, I went to a public school in Ohio. It wasn't a private school. But the facilities and the just everything in the school was better than our private school in Spain. And I was like, whoa, how come the Americans have these basketball courts that are like dilapidated and falling, you know, like the basketball rings falling down, you know, like we can train indoors, you know, and outdoors. They had swimming pool. They had the jackets, the high school jackets and the uniforms and all these different things. You didn't have to pay for books. So it just, it started making me question things, you know, like I thought this is how it worked, you know, like how come you don't pay for books and how come you don't, then the, the, the different pockets of kids at the school, which we didn't have so much in Spain. Everyone was preppy at this private school. I went to the majority and but in at this high school in Ohio, you had like the football people and the cheerleaders, you know, like the jocks and the cheerleaders. And then you had the skateboarders and then you had, so I kind of had to find my way, you know, like, where were you? What group do I want to be part Which of? Which group did you yeah. join? I don't know. I think I was a mixed match. And I think I'm a little bit of a chameleon because of that. The advantage that it's given me growing up in this way and trying to look for the affection, you know, and love through money and stuff, the plus side on this, I can interact very well in any class and any group. I can be with the elite of the elite, the richest people in the world, and I can be down here getting my hands dirty on the farmhouse up north in Spain with people that have never even met an American and I can jive with all of them and I'm totally fine and they're totally fine and comfortable. So I didn't pick a group. I'm a little bit of a chameleon. I can adapt really well with either or. You're also coming across as extremely financially savvy. However, I'm not hearing a lot of conversations around money growing up, more of an intuition and through example, things like that. But when you look back at that time, who'd you learn the most from with regards to financial matters? The male figures in my life, obviously. It starts with my dad at a young age. I have this image of him. We'll laugh. At the end of every month, he would just have the living room carpet full of receipts just little piles of receipts everywhere <laughs> and organizing it. I was like, wow, this is weird, but I guess that's what you have to do. We're making money, you know, and you're having to organize it and all through. So I learned about managing money by observation with my dad, but it wasn't talked about. I never knew how much my dad made. I never knew how much my uncle made. You'd never ask that. It was a very taboo subject. In Spain, you don't talk about that. You don't ask about that. Fast forward to the States. When I moved here, when I was working after college in New York City, and then I, I married my husband, I switched my 401k 
from corporate, I had to roll it over into an IRA before we moved back to Spain. I had no idea. So I had a little bit of money that I made, you know, in corporate through my 401k because they matched it and all that. And that's what you're supposed to do. I didn't understand it. I didn't even know what it was invested in. And I literally walked into a city bank in New York City before we left to Spain, met the first guy that was available. He said, we're putting it into these mutual funds. I had no idea. I felt dumb. I didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't want to seem stupid. So I'm like, oh, sure. Well, he knows. So he must know what he's doing. Okay, awesome. I'm leaving to Spain and I'll come back and check on my money. Came back four years later and I had lost a lot of money because this happened in 2007 time and just the market tanked or whatever. But it was great because it was a learning experience for me. And my husband said to me, I'm forever grateful to him because of that, because I know so many smart women. I'm talking Ivy League colleagues, friends, family members, you know, that have gone to these schools that have all kinds of degrees and certifications. They feel like I felt that. I don't know about it. I don't want to know about it. Money's a man's thing. I'm not good with numbers. I don't know what questions to ask. Let me just give it to someone else and someone will figure it out for me, which is what I did. But my husband said to me at that time, why don't you call our financial advisor, meaning of his family here in Philadelphia that had been with their family for all these years. And I'm like, no, what, what, what do I ask? You know, like I'm petrified. I'm like, no, well, why would I do that? He's like, because just pick a couple stocks and you can reinvest that money, you know, into your IRA or whatever. No, but what kind of stocks? I wouldn't even know where to start. He's like, just ask him to send you a list with stocks with dividends. What are dividends? I could ask my husband because I felt comfortable with him and I didn't feel stupid, but I would never ask a financial advisor because I don't know that lingo. It's to me, it was like a third language. I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. So anyway, that's what I did. The financial advisor sent me a list of all these companies. A lot of them I've done advertising for. They did not align with my values at all. So I made sure not to invest in those, even though he was highly recommending them. And I just picked four to five. That's what my husband and the advisor recommended. And I picked them in different sectors. Again, following, like you were saying, Cami, my intuition. Because I didn't know intellectually how to go about this. And I wasn't going to do all the research for it because I didn't know. That's why the financial advisor was there. Picked four or five stocks. And every year I started seeing the money going up. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, and then the dividends got reinvested again, you know. So I'm like, this is pretty awesome. Why doesn't anyone teach you about this or talk to and my husband always looks at stocks you know at the stock market and he's all into it and so because i thought it was cool and i was starting to feel empowered and i was seeing how my money was growing i'm like i have to learn more about this and i started subscribing to different newsletters you know and you know paid subscriptions of different financial advisors and different companies, you know, Motley Fool, Agora Financial. I just started getting into it. I was like, I'm not going to do the research for these companies, but these people seem savvy and they know what they're doing. Let me play a little bit with a little bit of the money. You know, I'm not going to use everything because I don't know these people yet. I don't trust them, but let, I'm reading up a little bit again by gut feeling versus myself doing the research. And they say that it takes an average of seven years to double your money. In 10 years, I 10x the money that I have there and just from learning one. And that was just on the stock market. And then in 2017, I got exposed to cryptos. And I was like, what's cryptos? Let me learn about cryptos. What's that all about? And you know, that was a whole hype. So I started taking some workshops in cryptos and I started following different teachers. Again, you see the common thread. You don't know something, go get educated. You learn about it. And I've started understanding financial lingo and I, I didn't put a lot. It was speculative and the cryptos grew again in these last three years. And now my next thing is like, I want to learn about real estate. What other streams of income can we generate now? And in the process, when I started as an entrepreneur, I learned how to make money. 
when you learn through other entrepreneurs, they teach you how to make money. That's fine. So now I know the systems of making money. I've also simultaneously with other mentors learned how to keep money. What are the tax advantages of being an entrepreneur? What can I write off? What can I do this way? Oh my God, an IRA versus a Roth IRA? Why didn't my financial advisor ever tell me about a Roth IRA? So now I'm investigating. And now my CPA and I, he loves me because we just hang out and nerd out about all (laughs) these tax things that I'm finding out. I'm like reading tax books. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's a tax thing that we can apply. And so that's another way of saving money. It's not just about making money. It's also about how do I keep my money? And then how do I grow my money? Because I can't tell you how many women I bumped into that are awesome at making money, but because they haven't dealt with their mindset and they haven't dealt with their relationship to money, they lose it as fast as they make it. And they can be seven figures, multiple six figure earners and have nothing saved up. And they don't understand how they can be creative with their money and save and grow it. Brava, Tanya. Make, I'm going to reinforce what you just said. Make, keep, grow. Keep. And then yes. continue learning. I, I really just, it's something we are hearing so much on Money Tales and why it's so important to have these conversations because part of learning is talking. And so thanks for reinforcing how important that learning is, asking questions and don't be intimidated because the intimidation factor is really frustrating for those of us who are in the business and no one should feel intimidated. And it's not someone doing you a favor. It's actually someone probably doesn't know the answer themselves. So anyway, thanks for sharing that. I'd love to have a little dictionary of some sort, dividends, ROIs, leverage, you know, all these different things for those of us that when we are intimidated, we can look at it and see it more from a fun place. Mindset, this is a constant work in progress. You don't arrive at a place where you have the mindset because one of my mentors used to say, new level, new devil. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, you can make X amount of money. There's going to be new new blockage, new money blocks that are going to get in the way. There's going to be new self-sabotages. It could be recurring ones. And it is a work in progress. I don't think you arrive there. I think you just go through this the rest of your life and you just get better and better as you go through it. It's a really inspiring and insightful message. Many of us want to be perfect. And we think that if we just learn a little bit more, think about something a little differently, we'll arrive and we'll be there. And I think you're right, Tanya, that's not how life works. It doesn't. And I think it's a good reminder too of you're going to make mistakes, fail and fail good, you know, and just keep on doing it. Just do it over again. Even though I said before, you know, that I 10x my money in 10 years, that's awesome. But I also made some investments in this last year that totally tanked. And I got the experience. I'm like, oh my God, that company, like they had something that happened with them, some fraud or whatever. They even got pulled off the stock exchange. I'm like, what happens then? Do you lose? You know, like, so you learn through these things, you know, like you just, you have to just jump in and use it all as a learning experience. And the thing that I always remind myself of is you are smart, you are resourceful, and you'll figure it out. Like Marie Forleo always says, everything's figure outable. You can figure it out one way or another. And we aren't perfect. And I think striving for perfection is a big, big mistake. You know, it's just, and as women, I think we try and prove ourselves, you know, by getting all these degrees and certifications, myself included, I've been there, you know, it's like, been there, (laughs) done that. And it really is not so much about that. It is surround yourself with other women, have these type of conversations like we're having right now, ask questions be curious, continue learning, you know, and, and find the people that you align with too. You know, like it might be other women, women that have done the same thing you've done that are two or three steps ahead of you and that you want to do the same thing as they do. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I want, I want to achieve that. How do you do it? What do you do? I love that. Many role models. That's something that comes up from time to time. I think that's really good advice. 
Tanya, tell us a little bit more about how your relationship with money is today. Because you mentioned that you realized you had the safety net of being reliant on a man, whether it's your father or some other family member, your husband in some way. What are you doing with that? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you almost described it as if that was a devil that you've seen. Yes. How how are you handling that right now? And how is it impacting your current relationship with money? Or is it? It's not as much anymore. So I, again, since I, being a young little girl, you know, I wanted to kind of prove myself. The positive of that is it made me very ambitious, made me and my sister very ambitious. My dad, he gives out attentions firstly. It's three of us. It's my mom, my sister, and I. So we're all kind of like, look what I've done. We're here. (laughs) And one of the things that I've worked on when I made that decision of like, no, I need to heal my relationship with money. I can do it myself. I can prove that I'm as good as any man in my family. I can make as much or more. I can do as good with my money or better. And I can create a legacy for my daughter as well as like parents who are teaching us I look at it as like, we have to better ourselves with each generation. We want to leave the world a better place than how we found it when we were born here. So what things can we do? And I know my parents did the best they could with the tools and the knowledge that they have. And that's what I'm trying to do for my daughter, for her future generations. So my relationship with money right now, I feel like it's pretty solid. It's pretty strong. And yes, there are things to improve. It's not perfect. Like we were saying before, beliefs that keep showing up for me that go more and more quiet from my critter brain is you have to work hard for money. You have to work hard for success. I have to question myself sometimes. Am I doing this for validation? Because again, you want that attention. You want that acknowledgement from a dad or from my husband. And I've worked that pretty good. I mean, it's always nice to get the validation. Don't get me wrong. I do like the acknowledgements and validation from other people, but I don't need it like I did 10 years ago. I worked that muscle hard. And here's a, can I give a little tip of what I do to strengthen that muscle and that courage and confidence? I do a gratitude journal every night. I've been doing that for decades because I'm a big believer that money out of all things, you know, what you appreciate, appreciate. So if you can find gratitude, and I do believe we live in an abundant universe, just find the gratitude in your day, because there's a lot of things we take for granted. So do gratitude. But the second thing, in order to build that confident muscle, is acknowledge yourself, especially for women. I knew I needed this. I wanted acknowledgement from my dad. Then it was from my husband. It's the male figures in my life that I wanted that acknowledgement from. For the listeners, it might be from someone else. Maybe you want it from your mom. Maybe you want it from someone else. And what I started doing is acknowledging myself. At least five things I'm proud of myself. And I will write it. Tanya, comma, I am proud of you for doing this podcast today, even though you might have been scared. Tanya, I am proud of you for making dinner for your daughter yesterday instead of giving her a prepackaged thing, even though you were exhausted. Tanya, and it could be something as small as that because it sounds small and stupid, but it really is to you, it's something big. Tanya, I'm proud of you that you went to the gym today at 5 a.m., which you didn't even have the energy for, you know? So as you're doing that, then what happens is someone else will acknowledge you for something and it's like, thank you. And you don't have to justify it like, oh yeah, you know, it it really, it expands your capacity to receive, which is tied in with that mindset. Just like, oh yep, and thank you for that compliment. I already validated myself this morning, but I appreciate it. Fantastic. That's a gift for me and our listeners and Sandy, I'm sure, like what a great suggestion. When you talk, Tanya, again, I just hear a very successful person. All these great stories, they're just success. How do you define success? Success, I guess, is for me is doing what you said you'd do and being able to do it with ease. You have this goal, you have this dream, and you're doing it. 
you're achieving it because everyone's success is measured differently. My success is different than yours, Sandy's, or than yours, Cammy's. At what point is it success? Is it a number? Is it a job? Is it weight loss? What's your success? So doing what you said you do, and if you can do it with ease, that's successful. Tanya, how does money play into one's courage to be happy? Such an interesting question. I did these live events and one woman stood up. I remember a while back. She's like, so are you saying with the courage to be happy that the only way to be happy is having money? And I was like, oh, interesting. It's the same as what you're asking right now. And the way it ties in, and this might be a little bit of a rebranding for myself, is to me, money equals freedom. And since freedom is one of my core values, and that's what I look for. And freedom to me is to be able to do whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. There's no restraints. Go do that thing. Go order yourself that thing off the menu. Go on that trip that you wanted to do. After freedom comes happiness. So to me, money and freedom and happiness are all intertwined. Again, going back to success, to freedom, to happiness, you have to have courage. You have to be willing to do those things that you might not want to do or those things that scare you in order to reap the reward that's on the other side. I always say to my clients, choose courage over comfort because it's easy to stay in that comfort zone. But if you choose courage and it might be hard and it might be scary, you will be so rewarded after you choose that courage. Tanya, what's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share that maybe we haven't spent enough time on or we haven't addressed yet today? We've touched on so many. I guess my recommendation is just money touches everything in our lives. Unless you're living in the Amazons, we are all touched by money. Every decision we make is touched by money. So my encouragement for everyone listening would be to connect to your dreams and to your vision for your life and decide how money plays a role in that. Do whatever it takes to learn and to bring your gifts into the world because we all have gifts to bring into this world. And remember that you're resourceful, that money will come to you to support those dreams. Stay curious, continue learning educating yourself on finances. Be curious. Don't be scared. And I, again, choose courage over comfort. Just jump in and do it. Do whatever you have to do to get it. Tanya, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I wish it was coming sooner, but my next one will definitely be, we do with my clients, we have a lab called Money Date where we all come together for three hours and we talk about our money wins. It's a co-working space where we work on our money stuff. That'll be the next conversation. And I love hearing their wins and celebrating them and holding space for whatever has happened for them. So that'll be money date will be our next conversation. That sounds wonderful. And we hope it's a great, lively conversation. And we thank you so much for sharing with us the importance of being aligned and really being focused and intentional about money and really pouring into yourself to learn and to take control of your own life and to achieve freedom. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks, Tanya. Thank you. Appreciate it. I appreciate your time today and having me here. Thank you. Hey, Cammie, that was a really fun conversation with Tanya Visayo. What was one of the takeaways from the conversation that you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Sandy, Tanya, she painted a picture of Spain and definitely emphasized that you don't talk about money, but also the heavily patriarchal society. And then she talked about as a young girl, as a result of that, that she started living like a boy when she was younger. She wanted to look like a boy, be like a boy. Because money's a man's thing. And if you wanted opportunity and to be encouraged, and she's obviously a very driven person, to be the Tanya that she wanted to be, she had to be Tanya the boy. I thought that was just fascinating. She's got a great relationship with her family. So it wasn't a familial thing. It's just a societal and how that, that really could put someone in a trajectory that Tanya was able to 
deviate from. And I really appreciated how she did that, that she broke out of this mold and this assumption. But she did it by acting like a boy. Is that fascinating? Really fascinating. I thought that was really interesting as well, how that manifested in her. And then when she went to the United States and she found financial freedom living with family in Cleveland, that was pretty amazing too. What a great opportunity for her to compare and contrast two very different countries, especially at that time. Such a gift and such an important foundation for her in changing and following one of her values. And speaking of gifts, how about the gift from her grandparents? I thought that was so touching how they had saved up some money and they offered it to her to help with school and helped enable her freedom. It's amazing. This gift that she talked to us about that seemed almost like an afterthought really was so powerful. And I think about the gifting that we help clients do and what that can become what someone reflects on their life that really helped them accomplish a dream. And I hope her grandparents knew how important that $3,000 was to Tanya. And it was a true gift, no strings attached. It was not a transfer with obligations. She could do with it what she wanted to do. What she most wanted to do was go to school in the, in the United States. Sandy, what do you think about them picking up and moving to a city in the United States that they had never been to? I was really excited that Tanya shared that part of her story. We didn't spend a lot of time on it in the interview, but to decide that you're going to move back to the United States as a couple, they went through a values exercise. They thought about what was most important to them, what would make them happy. They said they wanted to come back to the U.S. They wanted art, they wanted culture, and they wanted nature. And they found it in Santa Fe. And I thought that was so cool that they allowed themselves the freedom to decide where they wanted to be and then make their life work on the geography. Whereas so many people that I come across choose where they're going to live and be based on Mm -hmm. a job, on some sort of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was super cool. Something Tanya talked about at the end of our conversation was a gratitude journal. And I really liked this idea. At dinner time, my family and I talk about the day. What was your bloom? What was your thorn? And what are you grateful for? So it's along this lines of gratitude. And I've now brought it to the dinner table, really like pushing everyone to say, what are you grateful for about yourself? What are you grateful about yourself that you've done And I thought it was just, it's so important for us. We're sometimes don't appreciate who we are individually. How's that going for your family? It's been fun. You know, I think about today, I'm grateful that I made time for a friend of mine. We got up early in the morning, she's visiting, and we went for a little walk. And of course, I'm grateful she made the time, but I'm grateful to myself because it's so important to me. What are you grateful for today, Sandy, about yourself? I am grateful. I'm, I might be anchoring to your story, Cammie, but I am grateful that I took a little extra time this morning during my walk with my dog to allow her to run around the park with a couple of other dogs. And I just watched her and I was relaxing and totally in that moment, not really thinking about all the things I had to accomplish as the day was going to continue on. Sandy, I know you accomplish a lot, so I'm proud of you for taking that moment. And then, of course, that meant taking another moment because her paws got all dirty and I had to clean them <laughs> before I could oh, disco. get to my desk. <laughs> but I appreciate the gratitude idea as well. I think Tanya's is really onto something there. I'm glad that it resonated with you. And I hope it resonates with our listeners because I think, especially when it comes to money, We should take inventory of all the things that we know, the feelings that we have around it that we're proud of, that we are grateful for, and the decisions that we're making with it that serve us toward achieving the goals that are most important to us. Thanks for tying that in, Sandy. It's so important. And thank you, Tanya, for this really, really wonderful Money Tales conversation. 
It was really fun. And to our listeners, we're grateful for you. We're also proud of what you do. Be sure you share your money stories with us. You can email us at podcasts at Thank you for listening to Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.